Hi all, I'm Omer, one of the pastors here at Spark. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that the lessons have been different from this. For these last few chapters we've covered in the Gospel According to Luke, the lessons have been lively conversations between multiple speakers rather than just one speaker alone in this monochromatic space. Uh, consider this a metaphor for the last bit of isolation we'll go through before we actually switch to being back in person together in the beautiful outdoor area at Etz. I'm very excited for all of us to finally be able to do church together again, face to face, for the first time in something like 15 months. I'll actually be able to see you checking the scores of NBA playoff games while I'm talking, rather than just having to assume you're doing it right now. I'll save you some time. The Nets are winning. Today, we're in chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel account, which is still very much in line with the flow of the last few chapters we've covered. We're in the thick of Jesus's ministry as it expands from his hometown area of Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, the central seat of power in Jesus's religious and political world, and where he'll have his ultimate showdown with both the Jewish and Roman leaders of his day. At this point, Jesus' ministry is drawing an increasing amount of attention, with many people hearing Jesus' teaching, witnessing his work, and believing in him, but also with many people hearing and observing the same teachings and work and resolving to oppose him. In fact, our narrative this week begins with Jesus being invited to the house of a religious leader, and the text says he was being watched carefully. So that's the kind of hostile environment Jesus is entering into. There are three parts to our text today, and I want us to talk through each, one at a time, and then we'll tie together some themes that run through the whole passage. The first text involves Jesus doing something at the house of the religious leader and then asking his opponents a pointed question about it. Second, Jesus then makes a provocative observation about the seating chart at the dinner table. And third, Jesus tells a parable about a dinner party that puts his audience on the edge of their seats, pun intended. So first, let's read the first few verses of chapter 14 and talk about what Jesus does while he's at the dinner party. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body, which is what we would call edema today. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Jesus is not throwing away his shot. For chapters now, he's relentlessly pursued his mission of healing the sick and preaching the good news wherever he goes, often, like in this case, consciously putting himself in controversial situations in order to confront the religious establishment that opposes him and comfort the disenfranchised who have been longing for some good news from God. Now, if you were throwing a dinner party and one of your guests who was very ill was miraculously healed, a natural response for many of us might be to be, you know, praise God. And yet this crowd's reaction is stunned silence. But if this very odd reaction seems familiar to you, it's because a very similar event occurred just a couple chapters earlier in Luke's gospel account. Recall that in chapter 11, Jesus healed a man who couldn't speak, 
literally giving voice to the voiceless. And instead of shouting, God is good, or look at God, the reaction of some of the religious leaders who witnessed it was to accuse Jesus of working on behalf of Satan. And like we said when we covered that text, something has gone very, very wrong here. If that's your reaction to someone being freed from a debilitating illness. Of course, the rest of that text, and we see that the religious leaders are so invested in the status quo with the power they have over their community and the ways they personally benefit from the system. And they're so threatened by Jesus turning things upside down, centering those on the margins and exposing hypocrisy in the process, that they'd rather imagine that Satan is behind the beautiful healing work that they're witnessing. That's what it's come to. I don't think it's a coincidence that a few verses later, in chapter 12, Jesus issues an almost puzzlingly severe warning. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And I know it seems like I'm now raising more questions than our text initially provided, like, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Why is it unforgivable? I thought God could forgive anything. And what does this have to do with the religious leader's reaction to Jesus's ministry? To answer those questions, it helps to look at how other gospel accounts also tie all of these narratives together. The gospel, according to Matthew in particular, takes several events spread across multiple chapters in Luke. Jesus healing on the Sabbath, some leaders accusing him of being a minion of Satan, and Jesus warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and ties them all into one continuous story instead. In Matthew 12, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and his opponents ask him if it's legal for him to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus heals the man, and the leaders begin to plot to kill him. Then they bring a man to Jesus who couldn't see or speak. Jesus heals him, again, literally giving sight to the blind and voice to the voiceless. Then the leaders accuse him of being powered by Satan. It's then that Jesus retorts with the statement, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And, helpful to us here, he adds, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Across both gospel accounts, I think what we're seeing here is an appropriately severe warning about what happens when we become so invested in defending our own personal privileged status quo that when God is doing a good thing right in front of us, we refuse to acknowledge it. We refuse to attribute it to God and instead do the opposite. We see kingdom work and we think it must be the work of Satan. And that is dangerous. Jesus calls out these leaders' reactions, whether demonic accusations or bitter silence, to tell them they're in a dangerous place. If their moral compass has become so warped that they can't be happy when those who are suffering find rescue and relief, then what can Jesus do? Jesus even concedes, you can speak out against me and that's forgivable. He's saying, I can work with that. But if you see the healing, saving work of the Holy Spirit, and you speak out against that, then no miracle is going to change your mind. Haters going to hate. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus pleads, If you don't believe me, at least believe the works I do. Surely you're not so far gone that you can't acknowledge that if you're seeing some good fruit, maybe it's because it's coming from a good tree. 
And these toxic reactions from the religious leaders, Jesus is saying, that's bad fruit. What does it say about them? When we did our lesson a few weeks ago on Jesus healing the person who couldn't speak and the religious leaders claiming Jesus was working on behalf of Satan, one of our sparkers in the live chat said that it reminded them of how many of us know and maybe even were the kind of Christian who refused to acknowledge any good that LGBTQ followers of Jesus did in the name of Jesus. Some of these people are so invested in defending their status quo that they can't imagine that the same Holy Spirit that empowers them to bring peace and justice into the world is the same spirit that empowers gay Christians to do the same loving works on Jesus's behalf. I think that's a fitting example. I was gonna make the same point, but the sparker made it for me. I was also going to add, of course, what about you? Maybe LGBTQ Christians aren't your enemy, but you got enemies that you could love more. We all do. I'll give you an example. We live in an increasingly political partisan environment. There's a lot of research showing that more and more our engagement with politics is driven less by what we believe and more by who we're against. If you don't like the president, you might be tempted to think literally everything they say and do is wrong. You might find yourself unwilling to acknowledge any good that can come out of an administration that you oppose. You may even have a rule of thumb in your mind. If the president said to do something, I need to do the opposite. That kind of negative partisanship is a virus that can affect so much of your life. Not just politics, but how you view the pandemic, how you read the Bible, how you interact with people who are not like you. And I'm warning us, we can't get so invested in our status quo that we become willfully blind to the good things our so-called enemies are doing. God's love is much, much bigger than that. Back to the current chapter. I also want to take a moment to highlight Jesus' question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This question is really another powerful way of making the same point that we're making here. The legal experts that Jesus was debating with certainly would have grasped and agreed with the intuition behind Jesus' question. There was a Jewish principle in Jesus' day that argued that obeying the commandment to save or preserve life is more important than obeying any other commandment. So if you have to break a commandment, like, say, not working on the Sabbath, in order to save someone's life, do it. The religious leaders wanted to catch Jesus breaking the law so that they could discredit him. And they thought catching him working on the Sabbath by healing someone would be the evidence that they needed. Of course, Jesus points out to them that they already know they would help a child or animal if they needed help, regardless of whether it broke Sabbath laws or not. Again here, Jesus is warning them, these religious rituals and practices are good, but we can't forget the point of why they exist. They are here to help us do the right thing. We never want to be in the situation that these leaders are in, that we've become so used to serving our own routines, rituals, and comforts, that we're unwilling to break them to do what is obviously the good or just thing. This is what Jesus means when he says in another place, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The law was for their good, not so that they could use it to suppress what is good. And I think there are many ways that Jesus' perspective here can be freeing. 
About a month ago, many of us completed the season of Lent, in which we gave up something in our lives for an extended period out of devotion to God, culminating in the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Many Muslims all over the world recently completed the month of Ramadan, which involves fasting from sunrise to sunset for the whole month. As someone who observed Ramadan for several years growing up and observes Lent now, I'm familiar with all kinds of discussions about, like, does it violate my fast to take medicine during the day? Or, I gave up dairy for Lent, can I eat Cheese Whiz? Because I don't think Cheese Whiz has any actual cheese in it. Starburst has gelatin in it, which has pig parts in it. That's not halal, right? I think these are all good questions to ask. But at the same time, in all of these discussions, I think it's important to ask, to always ask ourselves why we have any of these rules and rituals in the first place. Observing our religious rituals isn't about how much you can get away with and still be in good standing with God. Religious rituals are not a burden, they're freeing. We have these rituals and ethics in place to help us have a heart like God's. The world is a messy, complicated place. We're always making ethical trade-offs in everything we do, and it can be paralyzing, or at the very least, easy to judge those who haven't made exactly the same trade-offs we've made. Texts like the one we're working through today are powerful reminders that there are such things as weightier matters of the law. Some principles are more important than others. As we said during the children's blessing earlier, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. No political party or corporation you work for or neighborhood you live in should ever throw your moral compass off from that. Shifting to the next part of the story, Jesus makes a second observation that also challenges his dinner guests. So let's continue in the story. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There are a few things that I want to specifically call out in this section, and if you've been following along with us in this series in Luke, they should sound familiar. First of all, again, we see the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, where those who think they're in, that they're central, those with power and who love to use it, they will ironically find themselves humbled, and those on the margins will find themselves acknowledged, heard, loved, and centered. This is the outworking of Jesus' teaching earlier in the gospel when he says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Second, Jesus, again, seems to be making an anti-family jab here when he says not to invite your friends and relatives, but instead to invite those on the margins of your community. 
We've been talking about this theme in Luke over the last couple weeks as well. It's not a coincidence that just a few verses later in this chapter, Jesus will say, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If you remember our conversation a few weeks ago about Mary and Martha, you know that what Jesus is really getting at here is about priorities. Both Jesus' audience back then and all of us today have this relentless temptation to look out for ourselves and for our own. We structure our lives and our societies around getting married, buying a house, having kids, and then making sure everything you do in life revolves around serving that at the cost of everything and everyone else. And as our world slowly opens back up again and we start actually spending time face to face with each other, we'll have to ask ourselves, who are we making it a priority to spend time with and break bread with? Who are you looking out for at all costs? Now is a good time for that priority check. Finally, let's look at how Jesus expands on these themes by telling a parable about a big dinner party. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This parable beautifully captures so many of the themes we've been highlighting over the last several weeks. There's one last point about this passage I want to raise here that we haven't covered yet, and it'll transition us nicely into communion. For those of us, young and old, who've often wondered what heaven is going to be like, many interpreters have taken this parable to be an example of it. I came from a church tradition that loved singing, particularly and exclusively a cappella singing. So when we'd read about images from the book of Revelation in which saints in heaven spend all day and all night singing, I was often told that that's what heaven was like. Just singing to God for eternity, probably in a disembodied white space like this. Spoiler alert, I've been in heaven this whole time. But when people would tell me that that's what heaven is gonna be like, in my mind, I would be like, but I don't like singing so much that I wanna be doing that 24 seven for eternity. Of course, these are all images and analogs and metaphors. I wish my tradition had put more emphasis on other images of heaven, like a huge dinner party where everyone is invited and a bunch of people you thought were out are actually in and there's more than enough room for everyone. I'm down for that Jesus party 24 seven. And of course, longtime sparkers know that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about some place you'll escape to after you die. Jesus believed he was bringing in the kingdom of God in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This parable is about the nature of the kingdom of God here and now in our midst. 
And it's all the more fitting that we had a chance to read this parable together right before we start meeting together in person again for the first time in, I think, 17 years. Sparkers, we're gonna break bread together in real life soon. We're gonna sing, we're gonna preach the good news, and we're gonna heal. We're gonna make space for you to feel what you feel. As the Hebrew writer says, we meet as a church to spur one another toward love and good work. It's all about loving God and loving neighbors. And let's let God push us to think bigger and bigger about who our neighbors are and who has a seat at Spark's table. Family, we're blessed with this time together to feast in the kingdom of God. Communion is one of the most powerful ways that we declare to each other that we are family and we belong. We do this by keeping the tradition established from the beginning. As the scriptures say, in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.